This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, looking today at verses 4 through 16. We're in a series of studies in Ecclesiastes. Old Testament book that uh, in many ways, although it's part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, Psalms, uh, Job, Book of Job, uh, Proverbs, of course, Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of Solomon, is in many ways unique in the perspective that it has and the questions that it asks. Today, we're looking at chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. Hear the word of God. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And as we read this passage, we thank you that it is inspired by and has been preserved by your Holy Spirit, that we might profit in our contemplation of it. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
How many of you are familiar with the word postmodern? If you've heard if you've heard the word or read it somewhere, please raise your hand. Okay, a lot of you, many of you. That's not surprising because postmodern is a word that's being thrown around a great deal. I remember when I first heard the word postmodern, I thought, now that's strange. You know, I always thought that modern modern was where we are now, right? Modern is, is just, in any generation, where you are is modern, right? We're up to date. This is modern. How can we be post-modern? What comes after up to date to the present day? Uh, but, of course, that's not what modern and post-modern refer to in philosophical terms or sociological terms. Modernism uh, has to do with a way of thinking that grew out of the Enlightenment, uh, strongly influential through the 1800s, into the 1900s that was tended toward being very rational, great emphasis placed on science, confidence of improvement in the human race through education, through scientific achievement, um, very antagonistic toward the supernatural, toward anything that was not empirical. And the uh, early optimism was dashed in the 20th century through World War I, World War II, uh, the great oppression and bloodshed that took place under Stalin, under Hitler, uh, certainly in lesser and less known instances of oppression and brutality, wars of a smaller scope, but nevertheless as deadly, if not in number, then certainly uh, to those individuals Involved and who lost sons and fathers and husbands. Uh, the 20th century stripped a great deal of the optimism away that we're simply going to get better as we grow in knowledge and scientific achievement and education. Postmodernism, which comes after it, is in many ways a reaction to it. Postmodernism is basically, in many ways, irrational. It's much more open to the spiritual, but not to so-called organized religion. You'll hear people say, well, you know, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. What does that mean? But there is a greater openness to the things of the spirit, to the, to the idea that there is more to this universe and more to life and more to the world than that which meets the eye, that which can be measured that which could be held in a beaker, so to speak. But part of the basic foundation of postmodernism in its irrationality is that there is no truth. There is no overarching story that makes sense out of it all. Meta narrative is the word, an overarching view of reality that encompasses everything and brings meaning and makes sense out of all that goes on in this universe. And so what you're left with is lots of little realities. Each person has to create for himself, to create for herself, what is reality, what is true. And that's why someone can say to you, well, you know, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Now, you may be functioning on, on a modernistic mindset, which, by the way, in many ways is, is no more biblical and in some ways is more antagonistic to Scripture than the postmodern mindset. 
But still, the modern mindset sees, sees truth as this is it. And so it makes no sense. And certainly from a biblical viewpoint, to say, well, that's true for you and not true for me is a nonsensical statement. But the postmodern would say, well, there is no overarching story. There is no overarching truth, which, by the way, is an overarchingly true statement that, so, that contradicts itself. But that's for another time. And so everybody's left to create his own meaning, to make sense out of his own life. And when it becomes that subjective, the thinking person is left with a problem. There's two responses to that, by the way. One is despair. And there's a whole literature, much of it growing out of Europe, uh, that, is, that is a literature of despair, that, that faces this meaninglessness squarely in the eye and says, you know, honestly, there is no reason to live. There is no purpose to live. There is no purpose to life. Now, the other response is to drown it out. Hedonism. Turn to pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's no meaning, so let's have fun while it lasts. And so, in a sense, that's to numb the despair with pleasure. To have fun while the party lasts. Now, there are a lot of reasons why that that postmodern mindset is, is around today. But one of the striking things about the book of Ecclesiastes is that the same struggles, the same wrestling, the same effort to find meaning was around 3,000 years ago. And if I may quote from Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun, including postmodern despair. Because you find it right here in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so what we want to do today is we've been looking at the efforts of the preacher, Kohelet in Hebrew, the preacher uh, traditionally ascribed to Solomon, but whoever wrote it, someone who is looking at the world around him, trying to make sense of it without regard to God. What does the world look like if you take God out of the picture? And this is, this is, this is what he comes up with. Is there meaning? And we see these key words, vanity, striving after the wind. The word vanity is the idea of a puff of breath, a mist that, that quickly vanishes. And, and does, it, it honestly does capture that sense of meaninglessness, of impermanence, of futility very well. Chasing the wind, running after what you cannot catch. And as we look at the passage here before us, we see that he wrestles with three particular areas, some of which he's touched on, uh, others not, and tries to make sense out of them. What's going on in this world? How do we make sense of this? Is there meaning in this? Is there satisfaction in this? Uh, Three vanities that he talks about here. The first one has to do with work. Now, he's already talked about work some. Uh, The the person who goes out and works hard, uh, toils, makes a a life and makes a living for himself, has a career, but uh, ultimately it ends in the grave. What's the point? What does he gain by all his toil and labor under the sun? But here he touches on some other aspects of work that we want to look at. First of all, uh, he talks here about the emptiness of envy, or even talking about the motivation for work. Look at verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. 
Now, first of all, that's a strong statement. Is that entirely true? It's in the Bible. It's got to be true, right? Remember what we talked about last time. When it's recorded here in Scripture, this is what he said, this is what he thought. Now, whether God would agree with that or whether it even fits with the world as we know it, maybe not. Now, it's inspired. It's without error. That's what he thought. That's what he wrote. But as we saw last week, when I wound up debating instead of preaching my sermon text, uh, and especially in a book like Ecclesiastes, we have to filter what he's saying because he's being painfully honest and he says some things that may not be entirely accurate, and in his emotion, sometimes he may say some things that are just hyperbole, which is a fancy and nice way of saying they're exaggerated. Does everyone work hard out of envy of his neighbor? No. But certainly some people do, perhaps many people do, and that's what he's talking about here. Uh, This whole area of work, the emptiness of envy, all toil, all Skill. Another way to translate that, and maybe preferable, would be success in work. Come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, certainly that, for some people, maybe many people, is a great motivator. They see what other people have, whether it's in terms of their, their position, uh, their power, their influence, the success they have achieved, the perhaps wealth that goes along with that success, and they're envious, they're jealous And they want some of that for themselves, uh, maybe even to supplant that person. And so that drives them, that motivates the person to work. (laughs) Kohelet's, uh, the preacher's conclusion is, this also is vanity striving after the wind. Now the Bible says a great deal about jealousy. uh, And some have tried to take this and put it positively, but the Bible speaks of jealousy positively only in two places. I don't mean two verses, but I mean in two relationships. One is the relationship of God toward his people. Uh, You read in the Old Testament how God is jealous for his people because they, his people, are committing spiritual adultery with Baal, with uh, Asherah, with these other uh, Canaanite pagan deities uh, and are unfaithful toward him. He is jealous of them as a husband is for his bride. And that's the second Relationship where the Bible speaks positively of jealousy, and that is of a husband and wife for each other. In both of those places, there should be a jealous exclusivity to the relationship. But in every other case, the Bible speaks of envy or being jealous negatively. And so it is here. And he says this is vanity, striving after the wind. He also speaks here of the destructiveness of laziness. And the other extreme, perhaps, is the person who simply does not work. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Um, folding the hands has, has the idea of, of not doing anything, of being lazy. You know, Proverbs speaks of that. I remember one time in seminary coming back from my classes and being very tired and lying down for a nap on my bed, and literally my hands were folded, and one of my roommates uh, comes in and say, quotes from Proverbs, a little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands in rest, and poverty will come on you like a bandit and want like an armed man. <laughs> Thanked him for destroying my nap, and I got up and... Maybe it should have been, and bad grades will come on you like a bandit 
but the idea of folding the hands, that's the idea of resting, of, of going to sleep, of taking a nap instead of working. So you have one person who's driven by envy, but another person who is, shall we say, not driven at all because of laziness, and he eats his own flesh, which is another way of saying he hasn't grown anything. It's, it's an agricultural image. He's not out planting and reaping and sowing. And so he has nothing to eat except himself. He consumes himself by not producing anything in his laziness. Well, then he goes on to comment uh, on the joy of contentment in regard to our work. Look at verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. The Bible, and and he's absolutely right here, I'm not debating him on this point, the Bible calls for a a balance, moderation, between working hard on the one hand and being lazy on the other. In fact, we turn over to Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs 15, verse 16 and 17. Better, and by the way, that's a a common device, rhetorical device. We just saw it in Ecclesiastes. We see it here, a a proverbial device, the better than statement. This is better than that. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. And then in chapter 16 of Proverbs, Proverbs 16, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. And so... The preacher here in, uh, in Ecclesiastes speaks of the contentment. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. And so the joy of contentment. And scriptures speak of, uh, of contentment. In 1 Timothy 6, as Paul writes there to Timothy, uh, he says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's where he says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil people who are compelled, who are driven by this love of money. But godliness, godly character, with contentment, makes a man rich. That's great gain. Those are treasures, whether or not money is there. And that's what he's saying here. But then also in regard to work, he's talked about envy. He's talked about the destructiveness of laziness. He's talked about the the joy of contentment. But then also here, uh, the, the grievousness of greed. Look at verse 7. Talk again, talking about work. Again, I saw vanity, saw this meaninglessness under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so then he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Uh, this also is vanity and an unhappy or grievous business. Uh when I, when I read that, it's Ebenezer Scrooge who comes to mind, the miser. He has nobody, and yet he works and works and works out of greed. He never stops to ask, why am I doing this? For whom am I doing this? Why am I working like this? Why am I depriving myself of any pleasure? It's just absolute greed. He's not providing for anyone else, not taking care of anybody. He's just doing it for the sheer motivation of greed. 
And he says this, this also is vanity, it's emptiness, it's an unhappy business. And that's certainly, uh, as you read A Christmas Carol, the impression you come away with uh, from the uh, pre-ghost Ebenezer Scrooge, driven by greed. And so as he comments on work, we see all of this. Are we driven by envy, whether of a co-worker or a competitor or a neighbor? Uh, do we have to deal with a tendency toward laziness in our lives? Uh, do we find ourselves driven by sheer greed? Or do we understand the joy of, content, of contentment, of having enough and being able to enjoy it, being willing to enjoy it, and not falling into these other traps? Otherwise, you find yourself in what he describes as, as meaningless, it's pointless, it's empty. And certainly, insofar as those are sinful attitudes, sinful dispositions, they are. Now, having talked about the miser, who has no body, seems to segue into thinking about this whole matter of companionship. And if there's a vanity here, it's the vanity of isolation, of isolating oneself from others. Uh, and this, too, is, is not an unfamiliar theme in Scripture. Proverbs, verse 18, verse 1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. If someone cuts themselves off from other people, why are they doing it? Often they're doing it because they want to do something that they know those other people will not approve. Like the prodigal son who goes off into a far country before he leads his wild and riotous life. Why? He wants to get away from family and friends, people who know him, people who taught him in kindergarten. He wants to be out there alone where he can live it up. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. However, the verse concludes, he breaks out against all sound judgment. It is unwise to isolate yourself, to break ties to other people and effectively make yourself a loner. That's true anyway, but it's certainly true in the context of the church, the context of Christianity. But it's a huge problem. We live in a society that does isolate. We live in neighborhoods where we don't know our neighbors. We live in a community, and in some ways it's unavoidable, that is so populous that often it's, it's easy to feel and even to become anonymous. Unfortunately, some of our churches are that way too, which isn't merely a function of size, although that makes it difficult. But even here, someone could isolate themselves in many ways. It's a problem. We live in a society that tends to drive us toward isolation, and indeed many people deeply value their privacy, which is not the same thing as saying that they seek to isolate themselves. However, isolation is vanity, it's meaningless, it's pointless, and companionship and connection is much better. And he speaks to that here in verse 9. Um, he gives several reasons why isolation is vanity and why connection with one another uh, is, is a good thing. First of all is productivity. Look at verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Productivity. You simply get more done working with someone else than you do alone. Certainly there are some things that you should do alone, do yourself, but it's also true that working with somebody, 
working together, being part of a team, makes you more effective, more efficient, more productive. There's another reason he lists here, and it has to do with support. These next three actually, I think, come from the idea of traveling of, of, uh, in, in, in the ancient Near East, in his context. That meant walking, usually, uh, traveling on foot from one place to another. Um, support. Look at verse 10. If they fall... One will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. The idea maybe is is someone falling down, but even more than that, falling into a crevice, falling uh, off a road, falling down a slope. And he needs someone to help get him up, pull him up, pull him out. But if he doesn't have somebody, he's in trouble. And so the advantage of supporting one another, encouraging one another is there. Well, speaking of encouragement... He mentions that in 11. If two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Again, literally a traveling imagery. Uh, in the cold of night, to be together under one blanket, body heat, helping to warm things up as opposed to a person who's alone. Uh, some would uh, liken this perhaps to the marriage bed also, although even there sometimes the electric blanket comes in useful. But the purpose here is broader than that, although that's the literal analogy of staying warm, but encouraging each other. If one person is getting discouraged, one person is flagging, one person is falling behind, the other is there to provide encouragement. Uh, protection, verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone... Two will withstand him. Now, here the idea of being set upon by uh, robbers, by bandits. You know, if you have a bandit, he might overpower one person. But if there's two of you, or as he goes on to say, maybe even three, uh, he, he won't do so well. You can protect yourself. you got each other's back. Uh, think of the uh, parable of the, the Good Samaritan, Luke 10. A man. It's just one guy traveling along, and he's set upon by bandits and left for dead on the side of the road. Well, that's the idea. If there were another or three, uh, it would have been a less tempting target, and they certainly could have defended each other much better. And so isolation is, uh, is a vanity, and he demonstrates it by showing the benefits of companionship, of being connected. And uh, as I mentioned, our, our society, and in many ways our setting as a large urban and suburban area, uh, tends to push us toward isolation. Well, we have to counter that. We need to be careful to make sure that we, one, certainly are not consciously isolating ourselves, but two, that we take steps to make sure that we are in relationship with other people. Uh, that may mean having one or two close friends that know you, that call you, that you call, that you have a relationship with, that you do talk to regularly. Um, certainly within the context of the church, um, having Christian brothers or sisters who know you, perhaps who hold you accountable, who ask you pointed questions. Uh, but beware, if you ever find yourself starting to close the doors, starting to withdraw, starting to isolate yourself, uh, because as Proverbs 18 says, you were acting against sound judgment. So work, the whole matter of isolation versus companionship. There's a third uh, vanity that he mentions here, and it has to do with power. Now, it's worth thinking about as we 
are almost to within a year of the presidential election, although some of you may think that the campaign has already been going on for at least two. Uh, but the whole question of power, and maybe political power, which is the case here, but, but also power in other contexts, and it's given to us in terms of a story, a tale. And it starts in verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Now, he starts with what effectively is a proverb, another better than proverb. Better to be this poor, wise youth than it is to be a king who who no longer listens to anybody because he thinks he knows it all. But the story goes on. For he went, and we assume here that it was the, the youth, he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. It's unclear. It could be the king, but it seems to be pointing to the youth since he's the one in question. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth, which is an interpretation, literally Hebrew, a second youth. So maybe the first youth mentioned and then another one comes along who takes the kingdom from him who was to stand in the king's place, there was no end of all the people of all whom he led. And so it could be what you have here is a king who eventually is supplanted by this young, wise youth who may be, depending on how you understand verse 15, supplanted by yet another. So you have the meaninglessness here of, of one leader after another leader after another leader. But you also have the whole problem of who remembers it. Ultimately, who cares? Uh, Who knows? Later, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and a striving after the wind. Striving for political power, striving for corporate power, striving for this position of influence, whatever it might be. But, you know, the day is coming when nobody will remember you and nobody will care and nobody knows your name. You know, I mean, we only need to look at history. Uh, I'm sure that presidents, say, in the late 1800s, Samuel B. Rutherford, who was president when my great-grandmother was born, I'm sure people thought a lot about him in the day. He appeared in the newspapers. People went to vote for him. Today, who thinks much of Samuel B. Rutherford? I don't mean to single him out. probably okay guy. But that's the point that he's making here. Our leaders today, all clamoring and striving to be president or to be senator or to have to be governor, whatever the position is, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, who even remembers their name? And that's the point he's making here. And it's worth keeping that in mind as we strive for various positions. Now, having said that, we need to remember that he's observing life under the sun. Does work mean something? Working hard? Yes. What about relationships with each other? Yes. Even isolation? Yes. Does power and influence in our own day mean something? Yes. Why? Because the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Because God rules. God is sovereign over history. Because Christ lived and he died and he rose from the grave. Because God is working in history and using history to accomplish, to bring about his purposes. And that's where we have to come back to Kohelet here and say, yes, it does mean something. That gaining political office for the glory of Christ and a way of serving him by doing good in society does mean something. 
and relationships and even the loneliness of the person who is bereaved or without friends means something. And yes, our work means something because Christ has risen, because Christ reigns, because he is working out his purposes in our lives and through those things. They're not random events. And that's where we have to come back to Ecclesiastes and recognize that part of its purpose, I believe, in being in the scriptures is to show us the futility of life apart from God, the emptiness of life apart from Christ, and to drive us to him. You know, part of the purpose of the law is to drive us to Christ, to show us our inability to be morally acceptable to God and drive us to the cross where Christ died for those sins and accomplished salvation. Well, I think Ecclesiastes serves a similar purpose. It's to say, look, here you are living life under the sun. Don't you get tired of it? Don't you get tired of the pointlessness, the meaninglessness? Now, postmodernism, in some ways, brings about some good trends, one of which is people start wrestling with questions of meaning. And many people come up exactly where Ecclesiastes does. Life is vanity and chasing after the wind unless it's lived in relationship to the God we were created to know, unless it's lived in submission to the lordship of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know God, if you've not been reconciled to him through Christ, dear friends, Ecclesiastes is your life. You can numb it, you can blind yourself to it through the pursuit of pleasure, through working hard, this or that, but eventually you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and say, this is meaningless. This is pointless. This is chasing after the wind. Why am I even doing this? The answer is not suicide, though some have proposed that as the answer. The answer is Christ. The answer is that God is bringing history to a grand and glorious conclusion with the return of Christ in victory and triumph. That everything we do for his glory, everything we do in his name, no matter how large or how small, matters whether it is serving as president of a country or giving someone a glass of cold water. Because God said even that small and simple act done in Christ's name will not be forgotten. Which is another way of saying it's full of meaning. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that this rather bleak perspective that Ecclesiastes confronts us with would drive us to evaluate our own lives and where we are and what we're living for and what life really consists in. Not that we would despair, Lord, other than that that despair might drive us to Christ. Lord, just as we despair of righteousness when we are confronted with your law, Ecclesiastes confronts us with despair of meaninglessness. But we thank you, O God, that just as you provide righteousness in Christ, you provide meaning and purpose and direction and point in Christ. And we thank you for that. And we pray, Father, that if we don't know anything else, we would know that our lives matter, that they matter to you, and that they are full of meaning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.